makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power. Chasha. Greetings and good day and welcome, my relatives. I shake your hands with a good heart. It's good for all of us to be here. This is First Voices Radio, and I'm Teokasin Ghost Horse. This is an all-native hosted, all-native produced First Voices Radio, and Liz Hill is a producer of First Voices Radio. Our guest, Dr. Marlena Rose Selva, lives in the San Francisco Bay Area on traditional Ohlone land, and she is of Nicaraguan, Mexican, and Mescalero Apache and Greek descent. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist and has worked in the field since 2005. She earned her Master's of Arts and Doctor of Psychology degrees in marital and family therapy from the California School of Professional Psychology at Alliant International University in Irvine, California. She works in private practice with adolescents and families, specializing in foster care and adoption. She also serves on the board of directors on the Ohlone Audubon Society, bringing an indigenous perspective to conservation and environmental advocacy toward the protection of habitat for birds and other native species. She advocates strongly with the local community for creek protections. Her activism involves protecting indigenous rights, land, and ways of life. And we talk with Marlena about the various methods used to adjust adoptive and immigrant children to a new way of life north of the so-called southern border and the adjustment it takes to survive in a society that is, that is ostracizing to those immigrants. We also talk about the relationship of plants and how the consciousness of indigenous peoples is often overlooked to appear as if modern techniques and thought processes are more advanced to those age-old indigenous thought processes as we go forward in linear and non-linear thinking. And so we engage in a conversation. I'd like to welcome Dr. Marlena Rose Selva to First Voices Radio. Thank you, Siakis, and thank you for having me to have this important discussion to really have that experiences I've been given in, in this lifetime to be able to walk a journey where I get to be connected to the indigenous ancestors, our mother earth, as well as to, in order as part of survival, right, to work in Western society, to have um, 
a background in psychology and as a marriage and family therapist working with families and really getting to see the intimate side of people's lives and and getting up close and personal really um part of um, learning their emotions is also seeing where their thoughts come from. And a lot of those thoughts are generated by a, a Western colonial mindset. And, and so, because in my professional career, that's the mindset I work with. I do work with adoptees from from Central America. How, however, um, they've ad- been adopted into this culture from uh, what we now call the United States, uh, known as what we know as Turtle Island. And so, I'm even when I work with uh, people of indigenous ancestry, I'm seeing a, a westernized colonial mindset, and and so um, I and I have it even in my own family. I experience it because of being of a, a mixed multicultural background, having both the European and indigenous uh, native ancestry. I, I've experienced it even in my own family, uh, in my community work, in the environmental work, and so. Um, I've gotten to experience that difference where I think it goes back to the roots when I reference about the tree and the tree's roots where the tree gets the energy from, the nourishment from in community with other trees. Because as we know, trees communicate with each other. They help provide nourishment when another tree is in need and and they know who their offspring are. And and so when humans, um, when human beings created nations, uh, nation states, borders, um, migrated. The Dutch came on ships and, and then others came overseas. And that began a whole wave of uh, a change of, of thinking because people lost their roots and they, they took out the hyphen and they just became quote unquote Americans. And, and so when I work with mental health, something that's a really difficult barrier to penetrate is helping them under helping people understand that a part of that void, that part of that uh, purpose they're seeking, that good feelings they're seeking, uh, a part of that is that loss of roots, their DNA, their ancestry. It, it's left behind, and it's very fascinating to me. Um, more so in Western Europe, I see that being severed. Um, I'm also of Greek uh, descent and Greeks. Well, as we know, Greece and Rome, birthplaces of Western civilization, right? And and so I do see that civilization, as we say, has uh, been to our detriment as native um, indigenous peoples on this continent and around the globe. Being up close and personal with Greek and Greek American culture, I can see their strength, though, in knowing who they are, where they don't seem to have those identity struggles as much because they know they're Greek. They, they know who their families are beyond their grandparents. They, they know, um, they call themselves Greeks, not Americans. They, they, in the Greek community growing up, Greek, the Greeks I grew up with often referred to non-Greek white persons as the Americans. They didn't call themselves the Americans. So I think that's an important distinction to see the community. Uh, they still have a sense of the community, which is a huge part of mental health. And I work with, um, even in the environmentalism sector, there's wanting to create avenues to more access to nature, but a lack of understanding of the spiritual part of it, the spiritual connection. And, and because there's a lack of being connected 
to the land itself and, and to all of creation around. And, and so seeing how anthropologists and um, conservationists and persons with science degrees and those who study science from the Western um, mindset, it's they're studying nature. They're, they're studying. However, are they learning from our relatives? Because we, it's very humbling when we really connect to our relatives because we can really learn. And I think that's what our ancestors did. A lot of the instructions, there, there's the original instructions that were given directly as many tribes believe by the creator. There's also the learning piece of looking, listening. When, when we look and listen, we learn. And so when we see how our relatives, our non-human relatives communicate, how they survive, we, we learn from that as opposed to seeing ourselves from an anthropocentric standpoint um, versus seeing ourselves on top and, and um, having the audacity to think that we could just step in to, to their ecosystem and, and disturb that without giving thanks, without asking permission. There's such a difference there. Now, I know you work with your practices with adolescents and families and that... Western nuclear family to the native, um, I would say the Teoshpai in my language, which is extended family plus. And you worked in that world of, of the Western applied theories of how to be healthy within the habitat of civilization. And then there's the other part where native people seem to be taken apart because of that Western psychology and Yet we are—we seem to be coming up with more sicknesses according to that psychology. If you're an indigenous person, you see the symptoms of the Western mind in America and in Europe that it seems like we are just promulgating or continuing to mix mix up the symptoms to appear like they're, they're new ills. They come out in social ills, and we pick that up as indigenous peoples. Yet, when, when we go back to the traditions, it's very simple that we have lost relationship with the earth. And now we're, we're using Western psychology to find connection with nature. It's almost like living in two worlds, as you know. So when you practice with adolescents and family, what happens to the, the young adoptee you talked about? Is, is that person, that young person... Are they changing and having to deal with understanding colonial mindset? Or is it too late for people to go back? Great question, Tiokasin. I'm glad you asked this because I haven't had a platform where I can actually speak about it. And to be honest, I haven't been able to penetrate that barrier to their indigeneity. I haven't. It's. I can spend so much time trying to empower them and help them with their self-esteem and their depression and their anxiety and healing from their trauma. At the end of the day, the more I spend time on that, it comes back stronger, the, the, the Western ways. It's fascinating. Not that they're intentionally doing that or anything. I'm not even suggesting that. It's just, I've seen it. I've experienced it where literally it was youth even as young as 11 years old, it's so hard to help them understand it. I don't know if 
I don't know. I don't have the answer. I, I really don't have the answer. I can do what I know. And what I know is that I, it, it's nearly impossible to get them to even want to go there. Mm-hmm. Even if talk about it to help them understand part of their healing. Cause these, a lot of the kids I've worked with have trauma and, and, and even a, adults that I, who I work with. And it's so hard for them to go there. It's maybe it makes them uncomfortable unconsciously and people don't like to feel uncomfortable. The same reason why we can talk about when people talk about politics and social issues, it's easier to talk about the struggles within the system, within the system, beyond capitalism, industrialism, right? Within that system, it's easier for people to talk about equal rights and access and use all these terms to, so everyone can have equitable, you know, rights to access thriving in the system, people are more comfortable about talking about oppression in that context. But when you actually talk about on this continent, what happened on this continent for the last 500 years and how everyone is in some way responsible, not causing it, but has a part in um, the, the, the past trauma bringing it, in and how to cleanse and purify and be able to uh, be at peace. And, and But to be at peace, it needs to be addressed. And I don't see people going there. To, and, I, and it's not to assign blame about anybody's ancestors or who did what. It's not about that. It's just acknowledging it, right? Just acknowledge it. Even that's really hard for people to understand. Even, sorry, when parents from adopt children from Central America, for example, you know, certain countries in Central America, I'm careful right now with um, how I word it because I want to give uh, respect to the privacy of the population in my work. So certain countries in Central America, one in particular has a tremendous history of trauma for decades now with their adoptees, what their government did and exploiting their indigenous communities and pressuring the children to be adopted by taken out of their indigenous communities, their villages and being adopted by families from the United States that created a whole money-making industry right there. And it's hard for these kids to really understand that and who can blame them when they're told that in a way their message is that, well, you're, you're not American, you're from Central America. And, and so their caregivers don't know they're not connected to understand this continent without borders in pre-Columbus. Yeah, so it's hard for them when they're told, well, you need to have this kind of vocabulary, this kind of education in the Western system. Otherwise, you're an outsider. You're an immigrant. And instead of thinking, how can you be an immigrant on your own continent? These um, realizations or heard these this terminology that we're talking in, and it seems too heady, but after a while... You, you begin to understand what bypass language is, what denial language is, what diversionary language is. As you described, indigenous peoples have been displaced. And now we are forgetting the language of relationship and we're, mm-hmm. we're adopting what it takes to get attention within a, a society that's within the box. And as you know, we've talked about the box that, that's been created by a civilization that has been away from the earth and natural processes, rhythms of the earth for a couple of thousand years, I would go with it. Even from your own ancestry, the Greeks were, you know, one time it was 
against the law during that inquisition to outlaw mourning. Where would that energy go when you couldn't mourn? Would you would repress that and stuff it all inside and and you always wanted to hear good things about yourself. So when a leader came along and said good things, you gave in and performed out of that repression and often in violent terms. And people are been violent against the earth. We've been talking about this in a non nonlinear sense. And right. now now we have to put it together for the linear thinkers, because many are saying, what are you talking about? What do you what do you and Marlena and Teoks and Marlena, what are you talking about? And I think that the world at large is missing how to be nonlinear in uh, recognizing energy and knowledge from just about any place, because that we're talking about experience, not a program, as as you know. Thank you, uh, Teokasin. This war against the earth that you speak of, it's global. At, at this point, it's gotten so much momentum going. It has so much traction behind it. So many, I don't know if it's our place to think of solutions on how to stop stop it. I think it goes back to the evolution of the earth and following her, being with her and then and finding peace with that. And without being connected to the land and knowing that she has our backs, no matter what happens, that we are part of this entire cosmology and, and all living beings. And, and so in the context of activism, knowing who you are, where you come from, like knowing, knowing I can say I am Greek, I am Nicaraguan, Mexican, Mescalero Apache, knowing who who I am, where I come from, even if you're not fortunate enough to know those things, it's still within your heart and the ancestors will find you. And and the other, our other relations, everyone, every being will find you. When we're not on that path with understanding, there are ways beyond our comprehension. Linearly, we think of what we see in terms of logic. And that's something the Greeks look at, what's rational, what's logical. But we're no longer in the world of logic. We want to stay in it as societies across the globe. They keep, people are trying to keep the system going, doing everything they can to keep the system going, not even knowing it. Even people who have the best of intentions with their activism, they're, they're merely fighting for solutions that actually perpetuate that system, that box. Without understanding the element of time that was brought to us here on this continent by the colonists. Before that, we didn't have time as an element. Time was never against us. We never even thought of time as something as the enemy, worrying about aging, being fearful of death, all of those things. It's really hard to have an, an answer because with the Western, I noticed colonial mindset, there's so much wanting to know what's going to happen. That's fear. What's going to happen? If we can just be present and know today, how can I be good to my relatives? How can I give thanks to all of creation? How can I be good to those around me? If we can just be simple, but it's so hard We've, with technology, with this whole technological world now, it's so hard with linear thinking that I can't give a linear answer because there isn't one that I, because it's, it's, that fits to actually break the system. If you want to perpetuate the system, the linear answer is to go with all those solutions that are proposed. But that's only going to be more destructive to our Mother Earth. She won't let it continue, though. When she stops it, she knows. And I'm not worried about me knowing as a human being unless I'm, I'm meant to know. 
So there's the piece in that. One of our phone calls, we talked about the heat waves going through Southern California or California in general, that whole Southwest area. And then you described some of your work with the land and finding habitat and protection for the birds and other native species, including plants. And you noticed something about imported heat-resistant, heat-tolerant plants from other parts of the world that were planted in your area. Um, would you tell that story? Oh, I'd love to. Thank you so much, Tiakasen. Um, so I've noticed the relationship with the land and um, being where I live at home, working with learn and learning from plants and, and particularly birds, I've noticed that there's a memory there for the original native plant species. So even plants that came, I don't know how they got here, but they're here that are, for example, the European thistle being in a place where normally the the cobwebby thistle would be. And yet the the goldfinches are still going there. And, and the goldfinches are being drawn too, even though it's not the correct thistle, they're still being drawn. And and I noticed that with various trees, the, the walnut tree, there's a Persian walnut tree and what could be normally by the creek where I live would be the, the acorns would be dropping down, not the walnuts, uh, this Persian walnut tree, but the but we have squirrels grabbing the walnuts and harvesting. And and so normally it'd be either acorns or a California walnut. And then I noticed the privet tree that came here from Asia. Um, I noticed the waxwings go there to eat the berries. And normally uh, it would be a native plant that the waxwings would come to this area for. And, and so the native plant would be either a, a Christmas berry or an elderberry. And I think of the Ohlone peoples whose land I want to acknowledge being on. And I think of them, how, you know, they were so connected to those acorns, so connected to these oak trees and, and the creek. The relatives, the, the birds have not forgotten that. And so they're doing what they can to adapt. And so the plants I have that I noticed that it's not the same, though, because there's always going to be some kind of repercussion when it's not native. It, they don't know their place. And it reminds me of even human beings when they don't know the place in the land and whose land it is and and the ways of those tribes it reminds me of that because these species which are technically invasive plants they don't quite have the same understanding of the boundaries and their role in this ecosystem but i noticed the plants that i have that are native that i've done restoration work on they're thriving even plants from the channel islands who i know thrive in clay soil heat and neglect, they thrive during this past heat wave. These are red buckwheats. They thrive. They're, they're considered native California plants, even though they, they're endemic to the Channel Islands. I noticed though they thrived. It's still better to find a native California plant who can thrive under these conditions than go to a local or a corporate nursery who says, hey, these are drought tolerant plants. Get one because they're drought tolerant. Do your part. Help save water. Help conservation. But yet, it's not the same as native California. Who are we giving voice to? If anything, I'm to step aside and give voice to the plants. They're they're showing the way that it's to actually step aside for once and and listen by being calm and actually being comfortable in the silence, in the quiet, and hearing them watching the deer around, seeing what they're doing. So it's actually get it's 
my role is to really be a vehicle to giving voice to them and to stop blocking what they're trying to do because they know what to do. We're the only ones with the free will who are going astray. (laughs) And so, but I don't think our government gives voice to our our relatives, our non-human relatives. And so I've tried through environmental work to give voice to our non-human relatives and to the 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 tribes who are indigenous specifically to this local area. Um, and that hasn't worked out either. So there's a lot of discussion, uh, performative social justice. However, I have yet to ever see it being put into action. I'm finding this consciousness of the earth or indigenous peoples or indigeneity coming to life again around the world to, to find this consciousness and Yet, when I come back here, there's a different consciousness going on here. It's, it's constantly overlaid by concepts of domination in various forms of Hollywood, sciences, uh, religions, the educational process. The consciousness is the earth consciousness that's already here. And and I'm going to go this far. A lot of people say, well, we're, we're coming to the Native people to ask them to save the earth we're coming to the Native people to find the answer. And as you see, I'm taking notes on what you're saying. This is part of my Western education, so I don't forget. But when I, I'm done, I really don't use these notes because I'm, I'm trying to engage the consciousness that you were just intending with, the, with plants, the, the heat-resistant plants that are Native. Romanticizing Native peoples, again, because... We don't have it in the Western world, so let's romanticize the Native people because they have what we want. And yet, when they get to to a point of struggle, they always want to know how to do something. So it's up to us as Indigenous peoples, at least they think, to provide them with the answer of what to do with about things like climate change. Yes, that is so true, Tiokasin. I recently had a conversation where and it's not the first time, and it was just recent with a, a different person where it came up again, where it was that pressure of the solution. Give me the answer. And and I said, I, I can't give anyone the answer. It, I, all I could say was I can't give anyone the answer because originally each peoples, each tribe had their assigned area and they knew how to take care of that area. And how to keep in balance within that area or areas that for certain circumstances they needed to migrate to they, they, and, and needed to settle uh, somewhere else. They, they understood, though, what their role was. And so I said, I can't tell you what, because I know how to stay in connection and what that balance is. But just as another tribe can't tell another tribe what to do, I, I can't tell you the answer because it has to do with looking into your own heart. I, I can't give you any other answer than searching your own heart. I think that's that's a great answer. Such things as I go around finding out the languages and what their meanings are of indigenous peoples. And I'm, I'm going to come from a place that of experience to know that the way you answered that is not accepted so well in, in Western world, but they want to go there. So I'm going to say this is if I, if I, intended to say no, which was really not a definitive answer, but I'm meaning no, but I'm respectful enough to say no without saying the word. What I would respond is, I will consider it forever. 
that's without saying no. I'll say, I'll consider what you just asked me forever. <clears throat> that, that's a kind way, but it's a generous way. It's a respectful way. And sooner yes. or later, the answer, if, if that's what it is, comes. So, but I want to thank you for that. Any, any thoughts on that? Um, how effective has it been for you and the influence of those indigenous voices? So it's been extremely helpful to listen to your radio show and the other indigenous voices. It, it helps to not feel alone. And, and I love the fact that you include indigenous voices from all, around the globe um, and and particularly south of the border because it's it, it's, it's really hard because we still um, very much have a, a mindset in this society of, that there is a border and that somehow only Native people are, are north of, of that border. And, and so it's really helped feel connected um, because I long for that. It's a very isolating experience at times uh, when being so heavily uh, based in Western society and in the way we live today and and the way um, I have to work in order to be effective at, at my job with the persons who are seeking um, services in need. And so it's it can be really isolating at times. And as I told you before, feeling possibly lonely, it's, it's not being alone though, because like I told you before, having the presence of all of our relatives and, and beyond the, the, the plants, the, the trees and the wildlife, the water, water speaks. So even having the water, the clouds, the clouds have so many names. We've just forgotten. They have so many names and meanings to know what's happening. And, and so knowing they're here, it feels so good knowing we are not alone. We are never alone with as a human being though, which I am hearing the other indigenous voices speak helps me know there is still a community out there because we are social beings we are meant to be social and so thank you thank you for having this platform so we could be a community here thank you marlena rose selva thank you for joining us all the way from california and your experience being nicaraguan and mexican and even greek you know that that's a mixture that is is meant to be because that's what we are. But then we get rid of titles. Then we we then we we all are just human beings, and some of us have forgotten how to be human being, and we've we just turned into human doings. But we're both sitting in technological places, and yet the earth just keeps going, keeps moving. And I really the the metaphors of that day. But I want to thank you for being here and giving us your. Full spectrum expression. Do you have any closing words that, that you'd like to say? I'd just like to say thank you again. And thank you to everyone listening. Uh, thank you to Liz, the producer who helped put this together. Um, thank you so much, Chiyoko-sin. And I wish you and, and your people and everyone well and that peace. And with the earth. Peace with the earth. Breaking the 
gonna take your soul and you can't turn around Leave your money down One up your sleeve might get you two in the chest Hurting your heart but baby knows best And when she comes around Welcome back to First Voices Radio. My name is Teokas and Ghost Horse. That was It Ain't Over by the Black Keys. Dropout Boogie is the album. Our second guest is Charles Lyons, a producer, director, writer, video editor, and content creator related to the environment, human rights, and culture. Some of his work include documentary shorts for the UN in Brazil, India, and Japan. Served as an executive producer at an environmental nonprofit producing a series with NewsHour PBS and worked as a freelance writer, producer for ABC News and a staff reporter for Variety. He holds a doctorate in film and theater from Columbia University and an author of the book, The New Censors, Movies and the Culture Wars. Charles has founded Brightly Pictures in 2021. I wanted to talk about an article with Charles who co-wrote with Charlie Espinoza and published in Mongo Bay, a U.S. nonprofit conservation and environmental science news platform on the continued struggle by indigenous peoples in Suriname against legal gold mining on their territory. And welcome to First Forces Radio, Charles Lyons. But you are in a country, a lot of people think it's someplace different than where it's located. And it's a very small country, the smallest one in South America, Suriname. I would like to know, actually, what's going on there and why you came out with the article that you you and Charlie Espinosa wrote about two bills that reshape indigenous rights and illegal gold mining in Suriname. And, it you know, it's just appalling after reading this, that this mindset still in place, you know, with the land and, and, and not really recognizing indigenous rights or indigenous peoples living there long before the Western mindset came along or democracy or capitalism. 
and it's still ongoing. But I wanted to go back to saying that you, through the Amazon Aid Foundation, that these articles are being provided by, but also that you've been on the ground and are underground in Brazil. And I want to get your your thoughts about what is going on, really going on in Suriname. And, and maybe you can describe where this place is. Yeah, yeah. It's great to see you again and, and to talk to you. Um, Suriname is in Latin America. It's, it's just above uh, Brazil. And it's a small country sandwiched by two Guyanas, French Guyana and English Guyana. The reason we decided to focus this recent article on Suriname is that nobody's writing about the smaller countries. And the smaller countries are becoming, when it comes to illegal gold mining on indigenous territory, they're becoming hubs where larger countries like Venezuela, Colombia, Peru can export their gold kind of in an intermediary spot like a Suriname or a Guyana. And then it goes to the Middle East. Then it goes to, you know, U.S. or wherever else and gets distributed, flows into other uh, parts of the world. But, I mean, it's being built on the backs uh, of indigenous and indigenous land that in the case of Suriname, uh, has not been recognized. There's been no signage by the International Labor Organization, no recognition of their rights. Um, so I was, you know, very intrigued and concerned about that and did, did some digging around for this article. So when you dug around for this article, there's several points that you've made uh about you know the, the non-recognition of indigenous rights when actually in 2007 when the Declaration of Rights of Indigenous Peoples came out through the UN, yet the UN is involved in recognizing how well they preserved the forest in Suriname and while at the same time overlooking repeated abuse of the land where the indigenous peoples live. Yeah, it's kind of strange, you know, Antonio Guterres and a contingent uh, in July went to went to Suriname and, you know, sort of praised Suriname as an example for the rest of the world for preserving its forests, but didn't mention at all that this is a country where the indigenous in this country have not been given the the rights that other indigenous around the world are are, are have been given and are getting. Um, so it was a it was a pretty embarrassing oversight, and a couple of the local indigenous groups called called him out on that and called the UN out on that, and and wrote a letter and you know got a little bit of a of a change of tone, but it doesn't change the facts. And the fact is that the country of Suriname's main economy is gold mining, is it not? Yeah, about 80% of the gold um, of, of the, the country's GDP is is gold. And, you know, it flows, as in Venezuela and a number of the other Latin American countries, it flows um, through so many illegal mechanisms, so many illegal, the, the government becomes complicit in the illegal use of, of indigenous territory to to make this gold to whether it's ASGM small scale mining on rivers or whether it's larger 
things like the Kaladi, the Mint House. Um, so, you know, they're taking their little piece and then they're letting it flow off to the rest of the world. And, and of course, you know, there's the issue of criminal um, organizations that deal in drugs that are trying to launder the money by getting it into gold. And then, you know, this is happening across the Amazon region. They put it into a legal commodity. Gold is a legal commodity. And, and then they, it just flows into the rest of the world. And it's incredibly difficult to, to follow those flows. There are people whose job it is, you know, professionals who try to track that gold. You know, I talked to one person who was telling me that the war that Russia launched on Ukraine was in large part being financed and has been financed by uh, illegal gold that Russia has been taking out of Venezuela, um, a lot of African countries, and stockpiling so that they could run the country once all the sanctions of the rest of the world kicked in. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a, it's an incredibly fascinating arena, um, the way gold flows. And, you know, one piece of the story is, is what happens in the Amazon. There's, you know, Africa and lots of other places around the world. Charlie, we talked about sort of the, the corruption and the players of that corruption. Is there anybody who's really in down, you know, on the ground helping the, the native people, namely the Bayana people and in Suriname. It's one of the few countries that I know where gold is, is actually the, the backbone, including other countries, as you mentioned. But is there any other legislation that's going through this country, which we hardly hear about? I was surprised. I thought I knew where countries were located. But is there any other people, other people who have common sense that are backing the, the the indigenous peoples there because they eventually they run out of gold and it's going to be what the land the, the the forest that they praise to that that will be there the un what will the un do when there's no forest will that be too late because as far as i can see they have not from this article they have not recognized a free prior to informed consent before they even go digging in Suriname. There are fortunately, you know, people inside and outside of Suriname who have been fighting the government. Um, Jupta, uh, who I quote in the article, uh, I told, uh, I want to make sure I got the pronunciation correctly. Jupta Utwaki. She has been a force for the last 25, 30 years fighting, going around the world, making some noise to make sure. Sh- to try not only to help her particular uh, tribe, but to help the people in her country and to get that recognition that they're trying to get. Now, outside of the country, um, there's a gentleman named Dicio Yakota, who uh, is with a NGO in Sao Paulo. He's a um, Brazilian uh, of Japanese des- descent who uh, has been a great activist and a supporter of indigenous rights in Suriname. So there are people out there, uh, Erlen Slur, uh, who is an activist and environmentalist in Suriname, has been fighting hard. And there are others out there. 
Um, but it's a very corrupt government. And this, this government is a little less corrupt than the last one, but it's still a government that um, is hard to, um, you know, it's, it's hard to figure out what's going on. In terms of these bills that we wrote about, these, um, you know, congressional bills, um, there's a, a gentleman uh, named Ronnie Aloma who uh, used to be a professional soccer player and um, actually made his name. He's a, he's Surinamese, but he made his name in Trinidad and Tobago. Tobago. He um, is using his celebrity, his fame. Uh, he's a member of parliament now to try to get some of these changes through um, in addition to indigenous rights. Also, um, you know, be more rigorous for the have the government be more rigorous on illegal mercury use in the gold mining pr- process, which is in- incredibly corrupting to the rivers, to the fish, to the people, especially indigenous who depend on the the fish from those rivers. So, so the bills that we're talking about was heard earlier this year. Now they waned over the summer, but they're seem to be like like the article states that it's coming back because of the new government of Santoki. Santoki, like I said, is better than her pre- his predecessor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's been considerable pressure on on him to do something. So let's see what he does at the end at the end of October or in October when he said he was gonna, you know, sort of hear these things again. But um, it's hard to say that that things will change. I think what uh, Jupta has been trying to do is get the international community more involved in in pressuring the government to do more um, because the situation shouldn't be the way it is. It's been that way for for generations. So there's also you know the legacy of, of slaves being brought over to South America to work for the colonialists but now that that's not in place anymore yet as as at least we know that but yes there are more marginalized groups of africans and descent there and they seem to be very active against the mining also is that true it's true um i mean but as jupta uh mentioned and we quoted in the article um one group the maroon um maroons there is need for some of the work that's provided by gold mining. And so it's this sort of double-edged sword. Um, uh, it's, it certainly seems, I believe, I believe that narrative that some people want it uh, and some people don't, much more than I believe the, the fake narratives that people like Bolsonaro in Brazil, President Bolsonaro, have been peddling, paying off indigenous leaders to say that they want these gold mines on their territory. Well, meanwhile, um, you know, the majority of indigenous in Brazil, for example, are, are resoundly against what's the massacre that's been going on uh, during his last four years, during his four years. And as you said, much of that gold that's mined is going back to Brazil, even with their ecological policies of their record to really not recognize indigenous peoples. It's much more that that way with Suriname's government and, and any little bit of hope is there. Even though there's gold mining and the UN came to praise their, their preservation of the forest, it's still 70% of that 
deforestation in Suriname is because of gold mining. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's it. It's it's in in you know we all know anyone who's following the the growing apocalyptic catastrophe of climate change knows that preserving the forests is not only vital but it's also something that indigenous have been have been amazing at for for centuries and obviously if you if you kill off the guardians then you're really saying goodbye to the planet that that's a good point and that we used to be able to drink water out of the river we used to catch fish with without any toxicity within them grow our food and now we no longer can do that now it's it's filtered water it's corporate farming that's taken over and that's where we get our food now but so we know mercury is involved you know gold mining deforestation but all that is to say the system of the government that's in place and what other country besides brazil has influence over that and thing you mentioned ties to the Ukraine financing the war, but also under the guise that the UN is present. But how how much teeth does the UN have in stopping the, the so-called development in Suriname? I, I think the pushback by the indigenous groups um, that I, I cite in the article, mm-hmm. uh, and I should say me and Charlie Espinoza, my co-writer cite, is that there's this great irony that they're trying to to come in here and you know come into the country and and seemingly praise the preservation while at the same time they they turn their their backs away from the needs of the of the indigenous people so you know i mean i think there are a lot of actions that can be can be brought to the fore but i think focusing on some of these smaller countries is is very uh, important because they usually get deleted from the dialogue, you know, from the narrative of what's going on. Yes, the dismissal of of the smallest country, the smallest voice supposedly becomes big, big after a while, and, that, and that's my experience. But now one stumbling block, but a stumbling boulder is in the way. The current vice president, Ronnie Brunswick, was he a good guy before? Now he's not? I, you know, and I, I, um, I wish I had my co-writer on the phone right now because he did more research on on Ronnie. Um, I don't, I don't want to answer and say the wrong thing on that one, so okay. I'm going to take a pass at the moment. But okay, that's good. Thank you for that. But still, determining that the indigenous peoples are at hand, and I'm glad you're there. You're filming, like you say, um, the illegal gold mining in Suriname. And I really want people who are listening to this to really look up Suriname and the article that that Charles Lyons wrote in Charlie Espinoza, September 14th, 2022. Can two new bills reshape indigenous rights and illegal gold mining in Suriname? This seems current, but it also seemed that this was done already 10 years ago, 20 years ago. But now it surprised me when I read the headlines. So I'm glad you're there bringing the news out. Thank you, Charles. And and just, you know, to give the proper due to Manga Bay, which uh, uh, published the piece and has been uh, publishing important articles about the environment, indigenous rights, uh, illegal gold mining. Uh, and, and, you know, it's just sort of a, a small environmental website 
Um, but I think it's getting bigger, and you know, I'm happy that through Amazon Aid Foundation, we're we're writing this series of articles. Um, but um, just to be clear, I am in Brazil now, and the election is about to start. And I think it's a very important election. I don't know if you have time uh, yes, for let's that. Yes, let's, let's yeah. talk about that. Your thoughts? Well, I, I, you know, I, I wrote a couple articles about indigenous rights during the pandemic in Brazil and how awful President Jair Bolsonaro has been to the indigenous in his country. Uh, even before he won the last election, and took office. He, in campaigning in 2018, said, I will not demarcate one centimeter of, of indigenous land. And this whole process of trying to demarcate the land to get indigenous out of some of the reservations and back on their own land um, has stalled and has been stalled since the 1988 constitution uh, in Brazil that um, that called for this demarcation. And to be fair, it wasn't done well under Lula, it wasn't done well under Dilma, uh, but what's happened under Bolsonaro is the opposite. It's not about dem demarcation is completely off the table it's been about, you could argue, a genocide. It's been about a systematic destruction of a, a roughly 800,000 um, that he just doesn't care about. And every piece of policy, including first day in office, combining the environmental ministry with the agribusiness, just putting those two together nothing like we've ever seen before, and basically dissolving FUNAI, which has the role of protecting indigenous people, uh, making it a useless organization with government sycophants, and allowing agribusiness to enter these vast swaths of land, threaten indigenous communities, disrupt them, kill them, and this is what's been going on. And I think the word genocide is a fair assessment. And so this election coming up on October 2nd uh, is very con consequential, not only to indigenous lives, but to the forests that they guard, they protect, to the climate, because if you don't protect the forests, you're not protecting. You know, we all know that the rainforest, the Amazon is the lungs of the planet. So you let that go and you're and you're killing the body. Yeah, I'm, you know, in a Western experience here, groups of marginalized peoples often revert to what's within a system like the human rights or civil rights in order to get names out there. But where you're at in Brazil in that area, Suriname, and also the people in the other area of Amazon in Peru and Ecuador and Brazil... Bolivia, and their rights are not recognized and don't want to be. In other words, there, there's a difference between saying, well, I'm Republican, I'm Democrat, I'm a uh, conservative liberal, but no one's recognizing the fact they're indigenous. They were in place before the political system and structure came in to play and to force everybody into 
so so called participating in a system of democracy, which is not true because the native people have that system of democracy with the earth. And so it is truly earth democracy. And so I think there's a fine line for people to understand that there's only that fine line that we can cross over to understand what earth democracy truly is, because that's for the good of all life and not just the human. Uh, the Western mind is talking is that it's only good if it's good in a system we stop deforesting, which is good, but then the system is still remaining. That's what I'm thinking, that the work you're doing is helping me to think this way. So thank you. Yeah, and I urge your, your listeners to and viewers to consider seeing the movie The Territory, um, the documentary film about uh, a tribe in Brazil um, that's fighting sort of on the ground with the, the would-be conquerors, you know, the the people who, who want to just go in and rape the land, you know, and it, it's a very resonant film without being hitting you over the head. But then when you walk away, you realize this is the story. This is the story of what's happening. I urge listeners to look into mongobay.com or news.mongobay.com and to look at and find the movie the territory so thank you charles lyons for being here on first voices radio uh it's a pleasure it's an absolute delight to see you again and keep up the good work that you do somewhere deep in the jungle are living some little men and women they are our past And thank you for joining us here on First Voices Radio. My name is Teokasen Ghostors, and this, all of these First Voices Radios that you heard in the last 10 years have been produced by Liz Hill, an Ojibwe from Red Lake, Minnesota. Excellent work. Doksha Ake Wachinkitelo, thank you for joining us here. <laughs>